Good morning. My name is Joe Jones. I'm one of the elders here and part of the preaching team. And this morning we'll be looking at the story of David and Goliath. And so let me pray one more time as we get started here. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would receive the honor and glory that you are so worthy of receiving. So we commit our time to you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. In fact, it's one of the most well-known stories in any book that has ever been written. And yet, many people misunderstand the main point of this story. Pastor Jason Hood says this, with apologies to Malcolm Gladwell, the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17 is not intended to offer a lesson in how underdogs can defeat heavily favored opponents. Nor can we find corporate leadership strategies or advice for tackling life's giants, ranging from debt to weight problems to addiction. Nor is the lesson, use the armor that's authentic to you. There's a philosophy in our world today, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's kind of a mouthful, but it speaks to how our culture understands Christianity today. And it goes something like this. God is out there somewhere And he's out there to help you live a decent and happy life. And whatever giants you face in your life, God is there to really cheer you on. And maybe that's how you think about Christianity. But if we spend time with the actual story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, we quickly discover that that message is quite the opposite of this message. Think with me about this. Rather than encouraging us to believe in ourselves and have high self-esteem and go out there and defeat our giants, The story shows, as verse 47 states, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's right. In fact, the whole point is that we can't defeat our greatest enemies. But there's a living God who can. And he's working through dependent, weak people for his own praise and glory and honor. You see, our greatest enemy is not low self-esteem. Our greatest enemy is not a failure to believe in ourselves. Our greatest enemy is not those who are getting in the way of our success. No, our enemy is much more threatening. All throughout the Bible, our enemy is described as the devil and Satan, the one who tempts us and accuses us. This enemy is stronger than we are. This enemy is smarter than we are. This enemy only wants to steal and kill, and destroy. And this is the enemy that we need God's intervention to be delivered from. This isn't myth or make-believe. 
Dark spiritual forces exist and are against us. If you go maybe on a mission trip to some other part of the world, a third world country maybe, you will likely experience the reality of demonic warfare in a more palpable way than we often experience here in the States. We have a real enemy who truly wants to separate us from God and from the life that is in him. So how does Satan seek to work in our lives? Consider some ways. He attacks our faith. He casts seeds of doubt in our hearts, doubts about God's love. He whispers, how could God love someone like you? He casts doubts about God's word. Is the Bible really a book that is from God and not just man coming up with a religious system? Doubts about the gospel. Is Jesus really the only way? Did he really rise from the dead? Is he really coming back to earth to make all things new? And Satan whispers these doubts into our ears. He, he tempts us to sin. He tries to get us to believe the lie that the pleasures of this world are greater and more satisfying and more lasting than knowing Christ. You know what? Satan hates Christian flourishing marriages. And he hates Christian flourishing families. And so he seeks to get into our marriage and to cause division and to get into our families and to cause division. Don't think that Satan isn't involved in all of that. He, he presents us with a thousand distractions so that we're distracted all over the place and don't focus on the one thing that matters, which is living for Christ in his kingdom. He keeps us lurking in the shadows of our sins, afraid to confess our sins to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can experience freedom. That's the work of Satan, keeping us hiding. How else does he work? He brings hopelessness and despair and confusion into our lives. He keeps us from seeing the hope and the joy and the peace that are found in Jesus. And he spirals us down, down, down into anxious despair about all of life until all we can see is darkness and gloom and doom. This is not from the Lord. This is from our terrible enemy. How else does Satan try to work in our lives? He tries to lure us into spiritual sleep so that we're not ready to suffer for Jesus and we're not ready to leave this world to go to be with him. And so he's trying to get us comfortable here. And one of the ways he's doing that is he's trying to convince us that he doesn't exist and that the spiritual world is unreal. And Satan is at work in all of these ways and more. But let's not give too much credit to the devil because Jesus is greater. Jesus is the champion who has defeated our enemy for God's glory. Jesus is the shepherd who protects us, his sheep, from attack. Jesus is the older brother who stands up for us 
against this bully, our awful foe, the devil. And so our call as Christians is simple. It's this. Look to the Lord. Look to Jesus. Pray to him in your moment of temptation. Simply trust in the Lord. Why? Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And that's the main point of 1 Samuel chapter 17. So let's look at it together. David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 58. And as we come to 1 Samuel 17, we ask the question, where are we at in the story? Well, the people of Israel, in rejection of God as their true king, ask for a human king like all the nations around them. And so the Lord gives them Saul. Saul is the king that they want, the king after their own heart. But God ultimately rejects Saul as king because Saul refuses to listen to God's word and to obey his voice. So Saul's kingdom is actually going to be given to a man after God's own heart. And in chapter 16, we heard about this last week, that better king, his name is David. And unlike the outwardly impressive Saul, David is not the king that we are expecting. But while man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. And my, oh my, does David have some heart, as we're going to see in 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 58, as we look at the story of David and Goliath. So turn there if you haven't already in your Bible. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and we'll start right there at the beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly 
afraid. So these first 11 verses are really the setup for the rest of the story. And we hear about a champion, Goliath, who arrogantly defies Saul and the people of Israel. So let's zero in on how Goliath is described. Three words. He's enormous, he's armored, and he's scaly. So he comes from a line of very tall people called the Anakim. And Goliath is a mammoth mountain of a man. I was at a Kane County Cougars game on Thursday night. And there was a guy there who's probably 6'7", 6'8", and just a huge dude. I'm about six feet tall, and I was looking up to him. But if Goliath was at the Kane County Cougars game, that guy would be looking way up to Goliath at a staggering nine feet, nine inches tall. Goliath would not be able to stand up straight in the rooms of most of our houses. And just imagine this guy, a mammoth mountain of a man. This is the guy that you don't want to meet in a dark alley for a fight. He's enormous and he's armored, heavily armored, in equipment primarily made from bronze. Did you notice that? A bronze helmet, a bronze coat of mail, and bronze leg armor. You can just imagine him shimmering in the Middle Eastern sun, completely covered in this orange-colored armor. He also has weaponry. He has a gigantic javelin. And we later find out a massive sword. You get the picture of Goliath standing there challenging the ranks of Israel. He's also scaly. He's enormous. He's armored. And he's scaly. You say, what do you mean he's scaly? Well, look at one important piece of his armor. Verse 5. Look at it there in verse 5 in your Bible. It says that Goliath is wearing a coat of mail. Other translations call this scale armor. And Andy Nacelli says this about verse 5. The Hebrew word translated of scales or scale occurs seven other times in the Old Testament. And every time it refers to the scales of a fish, including the dragon in the sea. Now, sitting around dinner table this week and I asked my kids, what animals have scales and what animal do you think they thought of? A snake, that's right, a snake. Indeed, so here, Goliath looks like a massive, now catch this, dragon or serpent figure who is vehemently opposed to the people of God. Keep that in mind as we go along. What's really going on here? Who is really opposed to God and his people? It's more than merely human. So we've been introduced to Goliath, that mighty and massive serpent champion. Let's meet the second main character in the story, David, the young shepherd. Verse 12, look at it there with me. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. 
David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now notice that David is young. He's the youngest of his brothers, too young to be in battle. Also notice, this is very important for the story, he is a shepherd. And day after day, for 40 days, Goliath is provoking and challenging and defying the Israelites. And if you, you put yourself back there as, a, as an Israelite soldier, 40 days, and as each day passes by, the situation feels more and more hopeless. This is a real test for the people of God. And often the number 40, 40 days, signifies a time of testing for God's people. And so here they are in the midst of this test of faith. And perhaps today you are in a time of testing. And there's some temptation that you're facing and it's a heavy temptation or there's some trial that you're going through and it's a heavy suffering. And let me just encourage you to wait on the Lord in the midst of that test. To not rely on your own strength, to not give in to fear, but to trust in the Lord for his provision, and help in the midst of the test that you are facing today. Even if it feels like all hope is lost, look to your God. Trust in him. So let's keep reading to see how Saul and the Israelites and then David respond to this test. Verse 17, look at it there with me in your Bible. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah, of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give his daughter, give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So Saul and the Israelites have been shamed. They've been embarrassed. They've been mocked. They've been derided. And they're so afraid that no one's doing anything about it. But David gives us a totally different response in verse 26. Look at the end of verse 26. David has what I want to call faith-filled moxie. 
Goliath, he says, has absolutely no right to defy the armies of the living God. Dale Ralph Davis says this, commenting on verse 26. To to this point, the narrative has been godless, much like our own stewing over some insoluble dilemma. But now David injects the godly question into the episode. Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all this? What a good question. Doesn't having a living God make a difference for the situation you and I are in today? Yes, it does. But David's big brother is a tad annoyed, to say the least. So look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Saul, at least at first, basically says to David, this is not a good idea. You're not able, you're too small, you're too weak, you're too young, you're too inexperienced. But David is resolved. He remains confident in his faith. And he draws on his past experience as a shepherd. The young shepherd says, I've killed bears And lions with my bare hands to protect my sheep. And I'm willing to bet that there isn't a single individual in this room who has killed a lion or a bear with his or her bare hands. And just incredible. And so David is a shepherd warrior. And so David doesn't go into battle with armor on as a warrior. He goes into battle with a shepherd's 
staff and with a shepherd's pouch and sling. You see, a good shepherd doesn't just care for and provide for his sheep. He also protects the sheep from whatever would threaten them. And this is what God is going to do for his sheep, the people of Israel. He's going to protect them from their enemies. What a good God. Haven't you experienced this in your life? God's protecting care from all that would harm you. This is our God. Look at verse 41 as we continue in the story. The Philistine moved forward, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine, and note this, verse 43, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. It's actually hard to understand how we miss the point of this passage when it's so abundantly clear. This story is not ultimately about David. It's not about David's strength. It's not about David's smarts. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord's strength. It's about how the Lord does not need sword and spear or anything that we can offer to him to do his saving work. God actually works through weak and dependent people to accomplish his purpose because the battle is the Lord's. As Dale Ralph Davis said, David will be delivered not because he has true grit, but because he knows the true God. It is the Lord who is full of grace and power. And David's single driving passion is the honor and glory of God, which has been defamed by this Goliath. And David will not have it happen. And so he goes into the battle. And okay, so we're entering on the battle now, the actual battle. I want you to notice that David defeats Goliath in a particular way. He doesn't thrust Goliath through the heart with a sword. No, he crushes Goliath's head. In other words, he crushes the head of this serpent. Does that sound familiar? Look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into 
his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, picture it, and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from uh, the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So David crushes Goliath's head with a stone. It's a skull implosion. And Goliath falls to the ground, face down, and now he looks like a snake eating the dust. So it isn't David who's cursed by Goliath's gods. It's Goliath who's cursed by the living God. And David then chops off his head with a sword and brings it to Jerusalem as a prize of war. So don't miss the parallel here. Goliath is a picture of the great enemy of the human race. And David is a picture of the one who crushes our ultimate enemy's head. So I want to read just two verses from the book of Genesis. And as I do, you make the connection between Genesis 3 and 1 Samuel 17. Look at it. It's up there on the screen. Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here it's prophesied that a child of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. And in David, we have a kingly child of Eve who crushes the serpent like Goliath's head. And in Jesus, the King of Kings, the greatest child of Eve, we have one who crushes Satan's head once and for all. And maybe you've thought about Jesus as a shepherd before. And indeed, he is a shepherd. He cares for us. He guides our lives. He provides for us day after day in every way. But just like David, as a shepherd, Jesus is also a warrior. As our good shepherd, Jesus defends us 
against our enemies and puts them to decisive defeat. And you may have never thought about Jesus in this way, but he lived life at war for us. He was the ultimate warrior. If there was ever one who battled against enemies, the worst and strongest and most terrible enemies, it was Jesus. And so we would be right to imagine the life of Jesus like this, waking up morning after morning for 33 years and going to battle every day. Battle against Satan, battle against demons, battle against spiritual forces of evil and darkness. And you know what? He did not lose a single one of those battles. Jesus, even through terrible sufferings and intense temptation, won the victory. Jesus, not Satan, is the victor. And his ultimate victory, the ultimate head-crushing of Satan happened at the cross. There, especially, Jesus was at war on the cross. How he battled there on the cross. How he achieved the victory on the cross. See, the cross of Christ is the equivalent of David's stone sinking into Goliath's head. It's it's the crushing of Satan that Jesus accomplished there on the cross. Here's what I mean. Because Jesus died for our sins in our place, we belong to God now. And all of his wrath is taken away so that Satan has no more claim on our lives. We're totally free from his accusations because we belong to God because of the cross of Christ. All of our sins are completely forgiven and therefore Satan has no claim on us. So Pastor Jason Hood says this, like David and his son, we too must carry our cross, deny ourselves, and resist the schemes of the devil. But the good news is that the decisive contest has already been waged at Calvary. The wrath that we feel from Satan is the fury of a defeated foe. Unlike Goliath, he may still be prowling around, but like Goliath, his head has already been crushed. So what's left for us is simply to trust in this King Jesus. In the midst of the whatever temptation or attack from the evil one that you are enduring presently, you today, the call upon your life as a Christian is simply to go to Jesus in confident faith in that battle. To not, not go back to your own strength and rely on your own wisdom or strength because our enemy is stronger and smarter than we are. So, and therefore, our call as Christians is to rely and depend on and pray to our mighty King, Jesus. This is the call on our lives. So I want to end with reading three verses that all highlight our dependence on the Lord Jesus 
in our battle against our enemy. The first is 1 Peter 5. It says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. In other words, how can you resist the evil one? Through faith in Christ. Verse number two, Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our only hope is in the strength of the Lord. And then lastly, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There's a wonderful hymn, one of my favorite hymns. It's called A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther. I believe it's the last two verses that I want to read as we finish. And I wonder if you've ever really thought about the words of these last two verses in this him. They go like this. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And I ask, what is that one little word? It's the name of Jesus. And so Martin Luther goes on to say, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So here's the therefore. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us into a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, that is forever, and that now Satan has no power or authority over our lives, ultimately. And yet we wrestle, Lord, in this life. And so we pray that you would fill us, even in the week ahead, with the power of your Holy Spirit as we engage in the battle that you have called us to. And we pray in the power of the name of Jesus. Amen.